Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Earlier this week, we took you to meet the new artists in residence. Who happen to be old. At American International College, Planet Earth's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus base right here in Western Mass, Young at Heart. Well, the Young at Heart Chorus will be performing with young artists from the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought in Northampton this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we'll talk with SCDT director Jen Pollins and Young at Heart directors Bob Silman and Julia Van Eyken. And it's Thursday. That's when Congressman McGovern joined. Us. We'll talk about the New Hampshire primaries, the danger of AI this election season, and how the Democratic Party is starting to stand up to President Biden when it comes to support of Netanyahu. But first, were you close? It was often the first question asked of our next guest whenever someone found out that her brother had passed away. That question haunted her and begged for a deeper answer. Northampton's Anne Pinkerton is the author of the book, Were You Close? In it, she invites the reader along on her own journey as she searches for a greater understanding about who her brother was, why his passions were worth risking everything, and how to carry on in the world and in her family without him. Thank you for joining us, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. It was a pleasure to read. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And very. the second I picked up the book and saw what it said on it, a sister's quest to know the brother she lost, I immediately, you know, gagged. Yeah, I gave gave him the book and I'm like, you're just going to cry the whole time. I'll tell you about the part that actually made me cry later. But maybe we'll hear a little bit of the book, a sample from your book in your own words. Sure thing. I'm going to read from the top of a chapter called So Many Questions, Most of Them Wrong. Other oft-asked questions in response to hearing the news that my brother David had died included, was he married and did he have kids? These were delivered sometimes in lieu of, but surprisingly often in tandem with, were you close? Because the answers to these two questions were simple and factual, they were easier to spit out, no and no. But the internal processing was complicated. My gut reaction was always, Why are you asking that? Does it matter? And then, angrily, feeling entirely invisible, oh, you're worried about some unknown wife and children instead of the person you know who's standing right here? Isn't that kind of you? Also, Cheryl is devastated, if you must know, but because they weren't legal, she was only a girlfriend. I guess she doesn't count. I know now that people are trying to demonstrate interest with good intention, and that these are the generic questions society has deemed acceptable to ask of people you don't know, but they aren't usually helpful and can often be extremely unhelpful. Mm. Do you find that the questions people asked you about David when he was alive varied greatly from what they asked you once he passed away? Oh, for sure. When he was alive, it was, you know, what does he do? And... What is he like? And how was your childhood? And, you know, the kinds of things that I'd actually like to talk about. Well, let's talk about that because we do get to know David pretty well from the book, Were You Close? Tell us about David. Well, uh, he was heroic to me because he was 12 years older. He was handsome. He was funny. He was incredibly smart. He had a really scientific mind. He was a doctor. He was a doctor. A radiologist. (laughs) He was a radiologist. He worked in the dark with x-rays and MRIs and things like that. (laughs) And Um, then would go out into the light onto mountains and things. Precisely. But also in the dark. Um, (laughs) Light and dark. Mm. So, yeah, and he was always athletic, um, which is how he ended up meeting his fate um, in the great outdoors. But, you know, we spent time as kids water skiing and hiking and doing all kinds of fun outdoor things, riding bikes, da-da-da. And so he just really took it to the extreme as an adult where he became 
overwhelmingly in love with running and cycling, particularly, which turned into triathlons and ultra marathons and adventure racing and on and on and on. I have to tell you that this book made me incredibly homesick um, because I went to high school in Colorado Springs. And Mm. so, like, we had a campus in Buena Vista and would often go to the sand dunes and further south to, like, the Collegiate Peaks and a lot of the other 14ers for, like, outdoor ed and, like, all of the locations in your book where you're connecting with the last places that your brother were made me feel incredibly just nostalgic and homesick for a place. I haven't been able to go back since I graduated because it's real expensive to get there. Mm. But like, it was so vivid. I could immediately see where you were and how it was placed. And I thought that was really, really cool. Do you still, like, in the end of your book, not that we're skipping around, but um, you mentioned that it's one of the more beautiful places that you've been and that there wasn't an interesting new connection coming to you with that place. Do you still feel that for that southeastern part of Colorado? I do, absolutely. Um, and Khalees uh, is referring to the end of the book where I go back to the mountain where my brother died on the 10th anniversary of his fall. Um, I really felt sort of wrong that I wasn't there last year on the 15th anniversary. I now have this sense that I'm supposed to go there mm. and sort of in tribute. So I do have a trip planned this June with my best friend and she's going to join me as we go back to the mountain. So it does call me. It really does. And I feel grateful that if if there has to be this event and there has to be a place that it is a place that's so beautiful and unique and moving to me. We're speaking with Ann Pinkerton from Northampton, whose new book is called Were You Close? A Sister's Quest to know the brother she lost. And we've intimated about how he, David, was an outdoorsy guy, very, like, uh, you know, top-tier outdoors person that's not doing it professionally while having a professional life as a radiologist. And um, the question that prompts the whole book, Were You Close?, takes a look at grief in a way that a lot of books don't because, you know, grief is often depicted in circles and how close were you to the person. Mm. Um, When a celebrity dies, some of us feel a certain amount of grief. So there's that end of the spectrum where we're not close at all. What's been some of the reaction you've gotten from people who have lost a sibling, who have lost somebody that may not be their spouse, you know, some or their parent or, you know, that coming at grief from this angle that gets overlooked, I think, in conversations about grief? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's uh, certainly become a bit of a soapbox for me to talk about the fact that there's this hierarchy of grief, um, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because it's perfectly natural to have feelings about a celebrity whose work you really connected with. Even though we don't know that person personally, it doesn't mean they haven't impacted our lives and that we don't feel something when they're gone. Um, Similarly, I talk about all kinds of what we call disenfranchised losses once we kind of get into the terminology around grief. And unfortunately, sibling loss, which strikes me as being very close to home, is really the only nuclear family relation that isn't treated with the same kind of acknowledgement or respect of another familial loss, like a spouse or a partner, your child, um, you know. And the thing is, Brothers and sisters are people we sort of assume we'll know our whole lives. I mean, in my case, as the baby of the family, I was I was born into knowing this person, and I assumed they'd be around for the rest of my life. So in a way, it's 
it's a really massive loss. And this issue of whether you're close, I, I mean, I spend a lot of time in the book examining what that means, because it's obviously not about geography. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, emotional connection or familial relation or whatever, um, whatever you feel about that person who's now gone missing. And I think that brothers and sisters really do get short shrift. There is a sense that we are here to like take care of our parents in the aftermath. I mean, this happens to siblings who are young and adult. Um, so it does really, it does feel very isolating, I think. And I've been really grateful that this book has done the one thing that I really set out to have it do, which is connect with other people who've been through this experience who feel really, really lonely with their loss. Do you feel that question ties into our, like something else that you encountered in the book, which was the finite timeline people outside of your family wanted to put on your grieving process? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a huge cultural thing that uh, was deemed even more problematic in the last couple of years when the uh, DSM, which is the big mental health Bible, basically started determining that after one year, your grief was pathologized on some level. Hmm. I, I mean, I'm not the first one to frame it that way. Mm-hmm. But this, and this is a new development? This is not how they looked at it previously? or Well, a couple of years ago, uh, and I could be getting that date wrong, so don't quote me, but in the recent past, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual for for you know mental health workers really did change something to complicated grief if someone is still experiencing symptoms after one year, as if somehow like a calendar page turn fixes everything. Yes, you would have gone through the first anniversary of a birthday or a Christmas or whatever was important with that person, but this notion that somehow you're going to just get to the other side and it will be cleanly over is entirely inaccurate, and I think anyone who's lost anyone ever knows that that's true, and there are, there are always going to be things that, that remind you, that trigger you, that bring the grief back. Um, you know, and, and here I am still talking about it. It's been almost 16 years since I lost my brother. And um, I'm just grateful to keep talking about it because for me, it keeps him alive. And it allows, hopefully, others to feel like they aren't, they aren't somehow broken in still feeling those feelings after a long time. We're speaking with Anne Pinkerton, whose new book is Were You Close? A Sister's Quest to Know the Brother She Lost. It, she's from Northampton. A lot of Northampton and, and the Valley are in this book, including your writing group uh, and Bay Path College. Let's take a little break here. Oh, and some music, too, which we've got to get to because music is such a big part of your life. Uh, we'll talk more about all those things on the other side of the break. Later in the show, the old folks who are the young at heart team up with the young folks who are our old souls at the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought. We'll talk with director Jen Pollins and directors of the chorus Bob Silvan and Julia Van Eichen. And Congressman McGovern on the way, giving us his take on election 2024 post-New Hampshire. But next, more with Ann Pinkerton on her book, Were You Close? You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. I found your Were You Close playlist, so I put in all the musical bumps in there, which show up a lot in your book, Were You Close? Ann Pinkerton from Northampton. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Ann joins us to talk about her book, About Grief in the loss of her brother. I think um, talk of why music is so important uh, to what happened, especially in the direct aftermath of finding out that your brother had passed away after a fall uh, while he was adventuring in a mountain in Colorado. 
Sure. Um, my life has been surrounded by music, as certainly my adult life, um, having been married to uh, Peyton Pinkerton, who was part of New Radiant Storm King and Silver Jews, uh, the latter of whom he was on tour with when my brother died. And somehow the universe threw me a bone and he ended up being home the night that I got the call, which was a huge gift. And um, so I actually spent some of the aftermath running around with the band because they were uh, going on to other cities and I was really needing company. And they really, they really embraced me and took me, took me into their arms and let me hide away for a few days um, while I was kind of grappling with the immediate aftershocks. And some of those song lyrics make their way into the book as part of your grieving process at mm. these live shows. I believe the Iron Horse is in the book back mm -hmm. when it was still open and <laughs> will be open again very shortly. Yes, but can't it, wait. It also provided in some way, at least for me, like knowing about Silver Jews and what happens to David Berman, that there was that parallel of, of loss across the book. Like here is this band that was some support and then there's implied for folks who are fans of the mm -hmm. silver jews the loss of david berman at the end towards the end of there too did you was that an intentional parallel put in or did that just kind of feel natural and end up being there as part of both processes well it's not actually in there you yeah. know that because you know. know that yes yeah. i, I mean that i think I know that <laughs> what's really interesting is that um you know the manuscript was actually complete before that happened oh, wow. uh, so <laughs> That tells you how long it takes to get a book <laughs> no, to market. I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> um, yeah, I know you are. Uh, it takes a, it takes quite a long time, uh, which shocks some people. But this this manuscript was actually finished in a first draft in 2016, uh, and then really fine finally got its shape in 2019 before we had that fateful event of losing our dear friend. Um, it has been really interesting that that is an undercurrent for me now this other David in my life that we lost. Mm. And um, and actually, Peyton played my book launch party last year and, and played the song that I reference in the book called Pretty Eyes, which is one that always makes me cry and was really poignant for me when uh, I was going through this experience freshly. So it was uh, emotional again to, to talk about it during that event and to have him sort of present even in his lack of presence. Let's hear a little bit more from your book. This is Anne Pinkerton, Were You Close? Sure. This chapter is called Closer. How do you rank closeness, if closeness can even be defined? When I considered the quality of David's and my closeness, or ranked our closeness, it only made my insides ache. Even after everything I read, wrote, studied, discussed, and explored, I sometimes felt unentitled to my pain and spent a lot of time and energy wishing David and I had been a lot closer than we ever were, that we had talked more, seen each other more, done more together, learned more about each other in general. It filled me with regret and longing. If David and I weren't as close as I wanted us to be, part of what made me extra sad was that I believed each year we were getting there, slowly but surely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about getting, feeling closer to him after his passing than, than in these moments that you reference here? Yeah, I think one of the strangest things about doing this project was how very, very close you can get to somebody even once they're gone. 
I think it's one of those things that can happen with anyone who loses somebody if they really are willing to look at it. Um, anyone who reads the book will know that I got kind of obsessive about it <laughs> because I was desperate to understand who my brother was. And, and that's a weird thing to say. I did know him for 35 years after all. And yet there are always things we don't know about each other. I didn't know that you had this formative experience in Colorado police. <laughs> um, it's really cool to know that now. But I think um, especially his adventure life was was something that we only experienced as a family kind of in highlights. You know, we would hear stories in the, you know, after he'd won a race or been on some grand adventure. And I, it never occurred to me to say like, what drives you to do this? Why do you do such risky things? I mean, even as my mom and I would follow along online charting his team's course when he was on one of these multi-day or even multi-week adventure races, um, I suppose part of us was a little nervous sometimes. I mean, we weren't in denial that what he was doing had some danger to it, but it wasn't always tinged with this, <gasps> what if? And yet, it was completely predictable that this is the way he died. It was so predictable that I learned later he'd had conversations with his teammates about it extensively. It was how we learned really, really important things like that he wanted to be cremated, which we'd never talked about as a family, but he had this second family that he was really, really tight with. And, you know, as someone who's been in bands, you know what kind of... Um, chemistry and familial kind of bond you get in and I think they had that when they were out in these wild terrains doing all of these really extreme endeavors um, they had lots of time to talk and they clearly talked about life and death and everything in between so yeah I I think it's very interesting that I'm I'm I think I can officially say I'm closer to my brother than I ever was and that we continue to have a relationship. I'm, we're having a relationship right now. Do you still have a subscription to Outside Magazine? I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I still read it a lot. And that's a way for you to feel more connected to the kind of life that your brother wanted to live. For sure. For sure. We're speaking with Ann Pinkerton, whose book is Were You Close? You have another brother in the book, Tommy. Um, do you feel closer to your brother, Tommy, who also experienced a lot of these same questions that you did, where as a sibling, he's lost a sibling, but they ask how your mom's doing. They ask if he was married. Do you feel closer to your living brother, Tommy, because of going through this process of writing this book? In ways, I really do. I mean, I think that in the way that brothers and sisters all have very different relationships mm -hmm. and are individuals <laughs> like everyone else. We don't have a ton in common, but we do have this bond that mm. we are left holding this ache, um, that we both loved him so immensely and that we had the relationships that we had. So I am very grateful to him because he's one of the only people in the whole world that could ever know exactly what that was like. Yeah. I mean, he's the only person left who knows exactly what it was like. And mm. so that's a big deal. And it does it does keep us bonded in a way that nothing else can. It's sort of a sad bond <laughs> yeah. to have, but it's beautiful to have somebody who understands you that way. I love when you talk in the book and it kind of dates and shows you how long it's taken to come out that you play words with friends <laughs> with your brother Tommy. You can still play this game. It's still around. Yeah, but everybody does Wordle now, I guess. So. That but is true. One word that came 
to light because of the book that I love, and I love words, and we should ask the word nerd about it, is perspicuity, which is not a word that I've heard about before, but I think is a, a big, important word for what this book and your, your brother's life is all about. Can you talk about that word and its inclusion? I love talking about words. Thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, what Monty's referencing, perspicuity, I mentioned in a chapter where I've read something by the fabulous writer Robert McFarlane, who um, wrote a book called Mountains of the Mind. And it talks a lot about the underlying psychology of the extreme adventurer or outdoor elite person who is gets to this point of why do we do it? And that, that really ended up being kind of an underlying question that I was asking all along the way was why did my brother do it? Climb mountains, Climb go on mountains, these adventures, you know, you know, these very dangerous right things. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he scuba dove. Is that what you say? Scuba sure. dived? Sure. Sco- okay. Attorney's general. Whew. One of those. Um, he, did all, he did all kinds of stuff, the highs, the lows, everything in between. And, and I think there was this, this underlying question to me about why was it worth it to risk everything? And Robert McFarlane says it was for the perspicuity, which I, of course, like you, had to go look up. Yes. But it sounds like its root, which is perspective. And it's for the perspective that only summiting a mountain can offer. And that really, especially as a, a really an original poet, was monumentally meaningful to me, pun intended, I suppose, <laughs> um, because that's something I can really relate to, wanting to get perspective on something, wanting to see something from a different angle, to really get a view in a way that you can't get any other way. I mean, it's a lot of work to get to a top of a 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado just for the view, just to go down again. Mm. (laughs) And yet, you know, that was something he really, really, really loved because there was nothing like it. There was nothing else on earth in life that made him feel that way. I love it. I love that this tragedy, which is very sad and comes across in the book, inspired you to go to Bay Path to uh, to continue to hone your writing, to work with a writing group locally in the area who get thanked in the book as well, and to put out this book that I think is going to be really important to people who've lost somebody who isn't their spouse, who isn't their child, who isn't their parent, that's so often overlooked in the world of grief. Like, And frankly, like just massively impressed that your brother did three 14ers in a day. Like that's that's Nuts. what they call the peaks in Colorado. Well, there's 15ers, too. Like, if, if it's at 14,000 14, feet, we get 14ers, and then there's some 15ers. But, like, yeah, like, that's mm-hmm. nuts. I've, like, I've done Ontario, and I've done, again, like, collegiate peaks, but that was in my high school days, and it still took me, like, the whole day. So yeah. getting through three of them, that's so impressive. <laughs> well, and those are things I didn't know before I researched it, because <laughs> I don't know what it's like to climb a 14er still, really. I mean, I haven't done it. You know, yeah. you've at least done it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was what was so incredible to talk to people about was that he thought nothing of, like, I'm just going to bang out three of these. No biggie. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, that's also the cautionary tale yeah. here. Maybe just two, <laughs> even if you're really fit. And then sleep. Yeah. Or take a yes. little break. <laughs> yeah. And Pinkerton, the book is Were You Close? You can buy it in our local bookstores here in the Valley and Pinkerton from Northampton. 
A Sister's Quest to Know the Brother She Lost. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. What yeah. a delight. It's a delightfully touching and fast read. So, yes, go out, enjoy, later, support your local artists. And later in the show, we'll talk with the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought and the Young at Heart Chorus, who are partnering with each other. And next, McGovering with McGovern on New Hampshire, AI, abortion, and the soon-to-be-open state house seat in his district. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. You're early today. Oh, I am. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm <laughs> no sorry. worries. I just got out. <laughs> I was just refilling my cup of coffee, and I was like, oh, it's ringing. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Let me find my glasses now. My pleasure. I don't know where I put them. Oh, they're on my head. Right. Classic. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern, in a segment we like to call McGoverning with McGovern. You can ask your questions for the Congressman at thefab413 at nepm.org. we got a question coming up about the campaign, so let's start there. Iowa was last week. New Hampshire was this week. Trump looks to be unstoppable at the top of the GOP ticket. And yet in New Hampshire, Biden wasn't even an option on the ballot. For those who don't quite understand why that happened, do you want to explain why this is what the Democratic Party decided to do with their candidate for president of the United States, who is currently the president? Yeah, they decided not to make New Hampshire the first uh, in the nation primary on the Democratic side. But having said all of that, um, Joe Biden one against those running against him on the democratic side in a, in a writing campaign so i think what we know now um and what has become clear is that uh, the race in november will be between joe biden and donald trump i am not sure that donald trump can be stopped i thought his performance on primary night in new hampshire was scary uh he seems uh, deranged and and just vicious uh he attacked Nikki Haley on everything from her dress to uh, he later tweeted that she was a bird brain. I mean, the idea that somebody who acts and behaves that way is the nominee uh, of a major uh, political party in this country is really frightening. But it looks like it's going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump. At least temporarily, the campaign will move with some competition to South Carolina the home state of Nikki Haley, who may or may not drop out before them, but unlikely to, it seems, she may give it one last go in her home state. But that is where the first official Democratic primary will be. Can you talk about the logic behind why the Democratic Party wanted South Carolina to be the first in the nation, despite New Hampshire having its own law saying that they need to be? I I think that they, again, this was not my decision, but I think they think that uh, South Carolina is more diverse in terms of population and more reflective of the country uh, in many ways. I mean, New Hampshire is, is not as diverse uh, in terms of its population as, uh, as South Carolina. And so I think they thought it was a better test of a, a candidate's national appeal uh, than New Hampshire would be. One of the things that was chilling from the New Hampshire primary was an audio recording of a robocall that went out that sounded exactly like President Joe Biden, basically telling people, don't vote now, it's not important, wait till November, which would be a message given that he was not on the ballot in New Hampshire that could ostensibly be true. 
Uh, you are a member of a committee that is looking at AI. We had a conversation last year about um, the dangers well, of AI. What is the country doing to ward against things like these robocalls and a, a couple of deep fakes that I've actually seen just today in the Boston Globe? Is there anything that's happening th that you're seeing from a legislative perspective to try to keep AI and deep fake out of this election cycle somehow? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure anything legislatively is going to pass between now and, and the election that's going to have an impact on the election you know, to prevent these things from happening. But I do know that the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security and, you know, our law enforcement agencies are taking all of this very seriously. I mean, uh, you know, they are investigating, you know, what happened in, um, in, in New Hampshire. But I think it's a warning. It's a warning that you can expect some dirty tricks uh, in, the, um, in the coming months. You can expect outside interference in the coming months as well. I mean, the spirit of Richard Nixon uh, lives. And I, uh, and I think the, the, uh, the fake call uh, that uh, allegedly was from Joe Biden saying, don't vote, I think that's, that's just coming attractions. Uh, and so we all have to be vigilant. I know our uh, law enforcement agencies and Homeland Security and Justice Department are going to be monitoring this stuff very, very carefully. But I would expect we're going to see more of this. Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who joins us every week. Congressional Dems are uh, pushing back on President Biden uh, in his support for Benjamin Netanyahu in response to what's gone on after October 7th and the war in Gaza. You and 43 others signed a letter uh, led by Representatives Raja Krishnamurthy and uh, Jim Hines in Connecticut saying that you are continuing to support a two-state solution. The letter says, we're deeply concerned by Prime Minister Netanyahu's public rejection of a two-state solution and respectfully request that your administration outline a strategy to marshal international and ultimately Israeli and Palestinian support to successfully implement a two-state solution. As I mentioned, you did sign on to that letter. There's also right. a, a group of 18 members in a conference in an amendment led by Senator Chris Van Hollen that would set certain conditions on aid to Israel. Are you part of that Democratic letter to uh, push yeah, back against no, the Biden administration? I, 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 yeah, I do. I think it's, re I mean, you know, I think it's reasonable to um, to put conditions on, on our aid. Look, I, I've said this many times before. What happened on October 7th is inexcusable, is barbaric, was horrific. The people that were killed were innocent Israelis, again, many of them who were, were leaders in the peace movement. You know, I've seen the videos of women who were, were sexually uh, violated as well. I mean, it, it, was, it was disgusting, and we all should condemn that. But at the same time, we also need to understand that uh, since that attack, 25,000 Palestinians have been killed, many of them women and children. Uh, the uh, Netanyahu government has used what we call dumb bombs, big bombs, uh, dropped in heavily populated areas, which has resulted in increased civilian casualties. We're now not only worried about people being killed by bombs in Gaza, but we're also now concerned that people are going to starve to death because it is still virtually impossible to get the kind of humanitarian aid and food to people who need it. So, I mean, you know, I mean, Israel had a right to re respond. But, but what they're doing at this particular moment and the way they're responding, I think, goes beyond the pale. Look, we need to be talking about how this ends in a way where there is a future that includes a secure Israel and a homeland for the Palestinians that is economically viable, uh, that gives them a chance to have a better life. And that's where the discussion has to go. At some point, you know, I mean, Gaza is just being destroyed. But it's at some point this will stop. And then what happens? Does Israel 
formally and militarily occupy Gaza. I mean, if that's the case, you're going to see more violence, not only between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but between all these other proxy groups all around the world. And there's an opportunity now in the aftermath of this horrific uh, tragedy uh, where it seems that people are coming together to say, let's normalize relations with Israel. Those are a lot of the Arab nations that, quite frankly, have been hostile to Israel. But in return, we need a homeland for the Palestinians. And let's start a, a better future. I do not think it is unreasonable uh, for the Biden administration to demand more than Netanyahu government. And look, I, I think Hamas has exploited the Palestinian people for way too long. I, I don't see a future uh, that is good for the Palestinians with Hamas in the leadership position. At the same time, I think Netanyahu has to go. He, he reminds me of Trump. I think he's saying and doing a lot of what we see right now in large part to stay in office so he doesn't go to jail. And you know, the sooner we can move beyond these uh, individuals, I think the better for the people in the Middle East. Any response from the Oval Office with this? Two letters from the Democrats trying to push back on Netanyahu? Not, well, not yet. I think they were just sent out last week. But they, but they know. We've had, we've had many conversations with the Secretary of State, um, you know, with others in the uh, close to the president about our concerns. And, and look, the goal here ought to be how do we create a better future? You know, and, and I think this is the moment where if you really want to end this violence, it is more than just about a ceasefire, which I strongly support. I, I think if you get a ceasefire, maybe we get these hostages, you know, out and, and back uh, with their families safely. But it, it's more than that. I mean, it, it has to be about what is the future and how do we do things differently, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, uh, which right now is also uh, a powder keg. Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern, a question from Diana in Greenfield, who writes in and asks, with the 51st anniversary of Roe versus Wade just passed, and with Republicans losing on this issue in races around the country, why aren't Biden and the Democrats talking about this issue nonstop during their campaigning? Your thoughts on that, Congressman? Well, well Biden, just, Biden and, and, uh, and the vice president just made, did a big rally um, on this issue uh, in Virginia. And um, I'm talking about every chance I get. I'm posting things on my social media as much as I possibly can about this. But look, uh, elections do matter. And we've seen the implications of Donald Trump's elections on a whole range of issues, but including on the issue of abortion rights. And you saw the court that he packed uh, overturn Roe. And now you have individual states uh, that are trying to tighten the restrictions on abortion rights as well. And we just had this March for Life rally last week in Congress, and they want uh, even stronger national laws uh, prohibiting uh, abortion and criminalizing abortion and targeting women who have abortions. This is a scary time, and I, I agree with the with the caller that we, you know, we this is this has to be a central theme in this campaign. Uh, but uh, but I think they're trying to do that. And again, there was a huge rally on abortion rights that President Biden led in Virginia uh, last week. To one of our uh, major issues, which is hunger and food security and food as medicine, you introduced a bipartisan bill that deals with metabolic disease and gastrointestinal conditions, allowing people to gain access to the nutrition they need to deal with that with uh, Representative Rutherford from Florida, who's a Republican. Talk to us about what this bill and what that would mean, and is because it's bipartisan, is there a hope that it may actually pass? Yeah, well, I, I, I hope it has a chance of passing, um, and I appreciate uh, Congressman Rutherford's willingness to, to be part of this effort. 
but it brings me to a, to a point that um, I, I just want to stress here. At the White House conference that you attended um, over a year ago, I mean, a big focus was about how food is medicine. And this next week, the Health and Human Services Department is actually hosting a follow-up conference to that White House conference on the issue of food as medicine, where some of the issues that we talk about in this bill will, will be addressed. But for whatever reason, <laughs> our healthcare system has ignored nutrition and has ignored food, which makes no sense to me. You could become a doctor in this country and not have to take a course in nutrition. And I think I may have told you about my meeting with uh, the New York City Mayor, Eric Adams, mm -hmm. who told me that he had diabetes so bad that he was going to lose his eyesight and some of his toes. And, and, he, and he was told by his doctor that there was really nothing he could do. He met with another doctor who told him, if we change your diet, we might be able to reverse your condition, which he did, and his mother did as well. So the bottom line is that treating people for a variety of diseases and illnesses require not just a pill, right, but require access to specific kinds of food. And if we get this right, we can not only improve the quality of life for people who are battling from various health issues, but if that doesn't prompt you to do something and all you care about is money, it'll save a boatload of money to our healthcare system. And so you know, we're going to be focused on all these issues um, on Tuesday in, in Washington. I think it's Wednesday, sorry, Wednesday in Washington. And I'm, I'll be anxious to tell you all the great results when we talk next Thursday. Excellent. And I know that you uh, welcomed our good friend Liz Ogilvie in Gardening the Community to D.C. this week to talk about small farms yes. and how urban farming and how those can make better food systems in, in Massachusetts and beyond. So that's that is some good news. Another uh, a little bit of local politics that's almost outside of your wheelhouse, but maybe uh, you've got some more dirt and scuttlebutt than than we have on it. State Representative Dan Carey stepping down. He represents parts of your congressional district in D.C. Any thoughts, rumors, hopes, gossip about who will run for that uh, open seat in I November? I, yeah, well, I, I I don't know, but uh, but Dan's a good guy. I mean, I I've gotten to know him, and um, and I've worked with him, and I appreciate uh, his willingness to try to get stuff done. And um, I think he's been a good state rep, and so but he's go he's going to go on to hopefully something something else, and uh, we wish him well there. But I I don't know um, who will who will run for that seat, but uh, we have a very good legislative delegation. Um, out in Western Massachusetts, and you know, I get to work with you know Natalie Blay and um, Joe Comerford and Lindsay Sabadoza, and you know, these are these are great people to to work with who care deeply about their constituents and who are always on the cutting edge of of important issues and 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 again are results oriented. But let me just say, I but it's been a, an honor and a pleasure and a, and a privilege to work with Dan, and um, and we'll see how it all works out. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. You running again in November? I am. Okay, just check. <laughs> Worcester's own Jim oh, McGovern. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. When you have a, if, a, if somebody else starts running against you, we'll probably have to change the tone of this conversation and maybe have your opponent on as much as have, we have you on. This is a public radio station now, so we're going to be very, very fair and balanced about these well, things. So yeah, we'll take abso absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's not that people, it's not that I'm universally loved. Oh, no, I uh, look at all your Twitter the, comments. You are not. <laughs> yeah, and most and and not all of them are from my wife, right? Uh, but, right. Anyway, but thank you and have a good uh, rest of the day. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Congressman. You can always ask your question for the Congressman for this segment at thefab413 at nepm.org, and we'll talk to you again next week. Always good to talk to you. Be safe. 
Up next, the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought presents the Hatchery Young Artist Performance Project in Labyrinth. With David Bowie? It's not all about Bowie Monty oh. or cod pieces, but the Young at Heart Chorus. We'll talk with School for SCDT director Jen Pollins and Bob Silman and Julia Van Eichen from Young at Heart. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. The School for Contemporary Dance and Thought is made up of independent, internationally experienced teaching artists who bring an abiding respect for the traditions, histories, and evolution of dance with the mission to continue challenging established ideals. SCDT offers adult and youth programming and dance training. And this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought presents the Hatchery Young Artist Performance Project in Labyrinth. You remind me of the babe. Where, well, I mean, maybe they do because they're young people. These young performers will team up with the much older performers who hopefully you met on Monday show. If you didn't know them before, the Young at Heart Chorus. I like to call them the Valley and the World's Favorite Octogenarian Rock and Roll Chorus. Joining us is School for Contemporary Dance Thought Director Jen Pollins and Young at Heart co-directors Bob Silman and Julia Van Eiken. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having all us. Of you, actually, you've all been you've here You've all been here on the show. But never together. And yeah, you gave us a little right. hint about this project when we had you on on Monday, Julia, where it's just kind of happenstance how this came together. But remind our listeners how these young folks at SCDT are teaming up with the old folks where at the average age is in the mid-80s with Young at Heart. Remind you guys of how it happened? Yeah, yeah. Well, we just bumped into Jen after a rehearsal. We mm-hmm. happened to be rehearsing in the same space. Mm-hmm. And she came up to us and was like, hey, uh, let's collaborate. I was waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the, truth, the truth comes out. There we go. And so how long have the uh, different parts been working together and rehearsing for this? Since September. Oh, wow. I, remember, so- I remember hot summer days. Oh, right. So a good long time. And what yeah. a bit. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and this is the second time that you've collaborated with Young at Heart. There was a performance in November where you collaborated yeah. also. How is this performance going to be going to differ from that previous performance in the fall? Jen Pollins. Well, we sort of swapped. So November, what we were guests ah. at the Young at Heart show at the Academy ah. of Music, along with many other fabulous dancers. Mm-hmm. And this time, the Young at Heart is guests at our performance at 33 Holly Street in the new, renovated, shiny, nicely smelling, like a new car, workroom theater. (laughs) Which we had those folks on to talk about the opening of that. Tell me, Jen, what some of the perspective you've been getting from the young people you're working with in Labyrinth about working with the Young at Heart chorus members. Yeah, I think that it's been... great and very different. Mm. Um, we were just talking about this in the glass room as we were waiting. Is just, That's kind of like our waiting room, our yeah. green right. room. <laughs> the fishbowl. The fish fish <laughs> um, I think that it's really important and unusual for them to have so much contact and especially like rehearsal contact and experience with older generations of people. Um, so it's been great and very different for them to be working in like with a chorus, with live music, mm. um, and they've loved it. Because yeah. while Young at Heart has a band, it's gonna be young people yeah. in the band doing this show, right? Yeah, so. so we were super excited about our pit band, which started at the Academy of Music in May, and um, they learned the five songs that the Young at Heart chorus will be doing, and will be accompanying the chorus, which is very exciting. So it's a young group of musicians as well. That's great. 
Now, Bob Silman, yes. the founder and director of Young at Heart Chorus, tell us about what some of the older folks you work with in the chorus have been saying about working with these young dancers. Well, I think they love that uh, they can kick their legs a lot higher than... <laughs> there is some heart. limited Young at Heart choreography. <laughs> no, there's limiting. Uh, it's, it's, young at Heart is interesting when they stand up. So, <laughs> yes, um, I think so, too. Um, but, uh, no, it's great to see uh, that level of dance. And when you're doing a song like we do with the band song, um, Life is a Carnival. Oh, yeah. And to have these young dancers turn it into a carnival mm. it's just kind of an amazing thing to watch mm. and it makes them sing better <laughs> that's cool <laughs> like how how else do, do collaborations like these work with young at heart chorus like not just with intergenerational groups like this but beyond well you know they're it's always interesting i mean uh, a lot of times the people we ask to collaborate with us don't necessarily know anything about us so there's a lot of like uh what am I getting into? Um, <laughs> but then, then they kind of show up and they say, "Oh, this is kind of cool. I like this. This is great." Uh, we had a in the in the November show, we had a woman named Harley Fox who, who mm. did go go dancing yep. and nineteen sixties go go dancing, not like she, strip club. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> wonderful, Thank, amazing. I, thanks She's for a clarifying that. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like. You could just see her light up to to the music that was being presented, yeah. and uh, and then she 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 danced to dance the music. I want to take you higher, which the chorus does really well. And uh, yeah, yeah. Just heard so a little just, sample of it on the intro mm, there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's always an interesting process to watch. You know, it's like you, you know the, the thing about the chorus is everybody goes, oh god, old people doing my music I, how dare they and then they, they sort of come and hear it and they say oh wow they're taking it, this in an interesting direction and that's what happens with a lot of people you know especially people who work with us there's a little bit of an intrepidation but then they totally go for it and the chorus is very welcoming to people who want to work with them so that works. We're speaking with Bob Silman and Julia Van Eiken from the Young at Heart Chorus, which is now artist-in-residence at AIC in Springfield, right. and Jen Pollins from SCDT, based <laughs> in Northampton. This is also not the music of the young people that you're working with. I saw an incredible preview video of Evelyn Harris yes. doing uh, Something Happened in Here, you know, yeah. Stop, yes. Look, What's That Sound? That's an important song in the 1960s, and for her, you know who was part of Sweet Honey and the Rock. What's that experience been like doing that kind of music, the rock and roll of the 60s and 70s for these younger people? Well, these kids are are pretty, like, alternative. They're not just plugged into, like, the, the present moment, a lot of them, you know, just being part of, like, an alternative experimental school. I'm always surprised by their music choices. Um, but that song... Yeah, just and gives hearing... us the chills every time to be able to dance to her voice and She's that amazing. song. yeah. Um, that's that will end the portion of the Young at Heart with Hatchery, yeah. and it's really quite. She's amazing. been such an amazing addition to Young at Heart. Yeah, because yeah. she's just a great singer, but she's also very, very thoughtful and wonderful with the rest of the members, you know, and really supportive of everybody. So. Uh, Jen Pollins, can you talk about the theme of of labyrinth for this particular piece in the last couple of minutes that we've got? Yeah, yeah. So um, labyrinth is like a a maze, right, of different um, 
difficulties and roadblocks <laughs> and um, like slows us down on our path to have to navigate and negotiate and like appreciate also like the the moments that aren't as easy. Um, and the kids are dealing with a lot of subjects in this piece. Like they make all of their own work. So I was talking to Bob and Julia and every season is a brand new world premiere of new pieces that have never been done before. So this body of work just felt, it just felt, we are, we're always looking for a good title and it felt like an appropriate title for the like diversity of work that is being shown mm-hmm. with the kids. Yeah. And it's not just with Young and Heart Chorus, so there'll be five songs with them and then more. Yeah, there's the, the show's about an hour and a half. There's about 10 pieces that the kids made. Um, and we're also working with Youthful Expressions from Springfield, who we met at mm-hmm. the show at the Academy in November, and we're starting to collaborate with them. So they'll come and show a few pieces on Sunday as well. So it's a big, fun, wild event. I love how this community has built up by kind of like happenstance, mm-hmm. rehe- same rehearsal spaces, yeah. you know, a fortuitous, serendipitous encounter, and now all of a sudden, two shows with Young at Heart and School mm-hmm. for Contemporary Dance and Thought, and other partners from all that. It's Collaborations are where it's at. They yep. sure are. Yeah. And you can see this one Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week at the Northampton Community Arts Trust Building on 33 Holly in Northampton. And then next Thursday, you can come to AIC and watch Young at Heart at the Esther Theater. I can't remember her last name. Yeah, it's Griswold. Griswold. Esther Griswold. Griswold. Yeah, it's a great Way theater. It is a great theater. Everybody raves about the lunch there, too. So I guess. It's pretty good. <laughs> I'm cheap. Just came from that. Yeah, yeah. We, are, uh, we are the, uh, we're the hype people for the, for the lunch at AIC. <laughs> Bob Silman and Julia Van Eiken from Young at Heart and Jen Pollins from SCDT. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Thank so you. much for having yeah. us. We swear we're going to crash your rehearsals, not just because yeah, not just we get to lunch. <laughs> Lunch. Also, right. Evelyn Harris. Uh, Friday on the Fabulous 413, more intergenerational art as we head to the Art for the Soul Gallery to find out about their youth social justice art workshops. Executive Director Rosemary Tracy Woods and instructor Jason Montgomery join us to explore how learning new art can encourage larger changes in the world. Plus, for live music Friday, Misty Blues will descend from the mountains to bring their low delta sounds to the studios, and the wine Thunderdome becomes bucolically bacchanalian as we drink Greek. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. My love for you.